You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John. If you don't have your word with you today, you can find it on an app, or we're going to have the scripture on the overhead. Uh, but today, what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at the second chapter in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and we're going to study verses 1 through 11 together. So you're looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and it's here we're going to read about Jesus and his first miracle at the very beginning of his public ministry. And I want you to hear what Jesus has to say and the interaction that takes place in this very first miracle. Now, you can call this in a lot of ways a semi-private miracle because it's happening in a wedding or at a wedding. And so you just need to know this is the first place, and I think it's so, uh, uh, so deeply encouraging that Jesus would go to a place like this. This would be the first place that John would record a miracle to take place. And here's what it says, beginning at verse 1. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus, Jesus' mother, was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw out, draw some of it out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water uh, that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it, they knew. Uh, then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have too much to drink. But you have saved the best for now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which Jesus, which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. First miracle here. What a wonderful thing, turning water into wine at a joyous occasion that could have gone south. I mean, when we get together and we have our weddings, it's, it's not even anything compared to the weddings that they had back in ancient Israel because they would celebrate for days and days and days, and they would celebrate. Uh, today, when I meet with couples before we do their wedding, I talk to them about what to expect and the things that they can look forward to, and most of the time what I say is this. Remember that no wedding has ever gone perfectly, and whatever happens in your wedding is going to be your wedding. It's going to uniquely separate you from all other weddings because of what happened. Now, all of us, if we have and think back being married and having that wedding ceremony, we probably can think of some of those things that happened that we didn't count on. But when we look back, it's kind of looking back with a smile on our face. At the time, it might scare us to death, but it's a the time that the time goes by years go by you look back and you think my goodness uh, that was our wedding that was that was the perfect thing to happen in our wedding our wedding was the same way uh, i waited about an half hour before my bride showed up i was just waiting in the where the groom wait and i'm thinking i 
I really hope she comes. I knew she would. I knew she was out spending time with her dad, but it's something I remembered. I thought, wow, this is going to be uniquely ours. This marks ours. Now, where it really got interesting is when we had taken off and left, gone to our honeymoon at a cabin in McKenzie River. That night, Annette gets up, and I hear this screech, this yell to the top of her lungs. I jump out of bed. We recognize that the room that we're in is infested with flying, biting ants. And that is something you remember. And we haven't gone back since. We asked for our deposit. I don't know if we ever got it. But, uh, but, but we, we got out of there as fast as we could. You just don't want to spend the night with flying, biting ants. But that was, that was one of those things that you just don't forget. You know, I have a lot of those things when I think about weddings or a few that stand out. My first wedding, the first wedding that I ever did, was for one of my best buddies. He asked me if I would do it. I was his age. I said, sure, I'll do it. And so he and his bride had a beautiful wedding at Portland Four Square Church. It was beautiful. And I was wrapping it up at the end, and I could just see this, this kind of befuddled look on his face. And, and I was trying not to look at him. I was trying to pay attention to what was going on. And he, he said, psst, psst. and right in the middle of the wedding, and I said, what? And he said, don't I get to kiss the bride? And I said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And you may kiss the bride. And so from that day forward, I have kissed the bride on my order of service, just so I never forget to do that again. So there are all kinds of weddings. I got to tell you another one. This is another one I got to tell you. One of the first ones that I, that I did here, I uh, sat down with the bride and the groom-to-be, and um, the groom so boldly announced that he was going to actually sing his, uh, his, his uh, uh, vows. He was going to sing them to his bride. And I'm thinking, dude, this is bold stuff to do that. I mean, I, I, boy, I don't know if he's going to be able to pull this off. Secretly, what I had done is I had gone to the fellow that was going to play the piano who was going to accompany him, and I asked him, do you know the words to the song he's going to sing? And he goes, yeah, I do. I said, listen, I hope he gets through. I don't think he's going to. If he doesn't, just pick it up. Just stay with him on this. Play the piano and sing the song. So we got there. That moment came where he was going to sing his vows to his beautiful bride, and he went, that's what all, that's all that came out. That was it. Guy playing the piano just kept playing. I don't know. I don't know if anyone realized what had happened, but we recovered that. Um, I got one more. I got to tell you one more. There's one more. Um, there's a lot of these, but I remember some of these. Uh, these, these are the ones that stand out. It uh, is what I and Annette call the turkey farm wedding. Uh, we were asked to do a wedding out at a turkey farm on a day that was probably 100 degrees. Uh, dusty. It was, oh, man. And, and on the way out, I said to Annette, I said, Annette, uh, and I've never done this before, haven't done it since. I said, Annette, the bride's name, is it Alyssa or Elisa? And she goes, I don't know. And I said, oh, no. And so, you know, once you get that in your head, you're really in trouble. You know that? And so I'm trying to figure this out, and I thought I had it down. The whole wedding, I, I got it wrong. It wasn't Alyssa. It was Elisa or the other way around. I still don't remember uh, but in the middle of the wedding, she said, my name is Alyssa. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, that's what you get for having a wedding at a turkey farm. That's all I got to say. But, <laughs> but, um, but, but the way they came in, man, she came flying in, riding a horse. Yeah, riding a horse. And then fell off the horse. Um, I don't know if that was alcohol-induced. I don't know. But, uh, but I thought to myself, I will never, ever do a wedding at a turkey farm ever again. That's my last turkey farm wedding. Uh, so weddings, obviously, 
are very unique. If they stand out with the guy who performed the wedding, they stand out for those that were in the wedding. And certainly that's, that's something that we all remember that particular wedding day. Well, the mess up at the wedding at Cana uh, was so much worse. When you look at what happened here, the possibilities of what could take place, it was worse than the turkey farm wedding or the wedding where I uh, had a groom melt down when he was going to sing his vows. Um, I tell you, this mess up had serious social and cultural ramifications. Because if they really do run out of wine, there's some problems that happen. First of all, they'll be stigmatized the rest of their life. No kidding. They would be known as the people who ran out of wine. So if you're going to bring people in for a week, family members and friends, you want to make sure that you really load up on the wine. And they didn't do that. The other thing that could happen, this is how serious it is. Back then, if a, a family ran out of wine during a wedding, they could, the party members of the wedding, uh, they could actually sue the family. I mean, that, that, they could go to court and say, you ran out of wine. And uh, I don't know how the judge feel, figures out if you're guilty or innocent, but, but it is a serious offense, especially in Jewish custom, if a family ran out of wine. So what else do you need to know when I'm looking through this and what do we need to know about this first miracle of Jesus other than saving this family's name? Well, listen to what it says again in verse 1 with me. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. So where it says, and you'll see it there, it says on the third day, what I want you to understand here, this literally means on the third day of Jesus' public ministry. He had only been in public ministry or christened to be in public ministry for three days. So this is on his third day of ministry. And I love it because Jesus gets right to it. I mean, he's not holding back. He is going to come and he's going to share the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He does that. But he starts on this third day in a wedding. Now, John is really subtle in symbolisms. And I want you, when you read the Gospel of John, be looking at other passages that he's written because it, you, it just stood out to me where it says on the third day, this is the third day of his ministry, I realized what else had happened on the third day that John writes about. On the third day, it says Jesus rose again. And so this is so interesting that one begins and one ends. I mean, both of them, John writes on the third day. And so when you're reading the book of John, just remember he has a lot to say and he, he, he weaves in things that are symbolic in this wonderful gospel. Now, this is the first of seven miracles recorded by John. I don't know if you know this, but there are 37 miracles all together in all four gospels. John keeps it to seven, and he calls them in his gospel, in his writing, he calls them signs. He'll call them signs. They're, they're seven different kinds of miracles. Now, this miracle took place in a small town of Cana. Uh, if you've ever gone to Israel with us, we have journeyed. When you go from uh, Caesarea Maritima from the coast and you drive over to the Galilee, uh, typically we'll pass through that little town of Cana. Cana is about 15 miles from the shore of Galilee. It's about 15 miles from Tiberias. For those that, that, that want a little geography there, that's, that's where Cana is. And so this is in the Galilee region. And, and so Jesus grew up not too far from here. He grew up in Nazareth. So what we see here are a lot of people gathered together, including a lot of family members of Jesus. We have his mother here. He's there. His disciples are with him. And what I want you to know about that is it's not the whole 12 yet. He's still out recruiting. He's probably got four or five disciples 
that showed up with him to this particular wedding. They were invited as well. It happens in Cana. It happens on a Wednesday. Uh, most Jewish weddings took place on a Wednesday, and they celebrated for one week and usually lasted for a long time. Again, one week, and it was lavish celebration. So here's something else. The groom was, in, he was either cl close friends or relatives with Jesus. Uh, that's why you get this, this gathering of people. He's, he's close friends or relatives. A lot of scholars say this is actually John's wedding, the one who's writing it. They believe that this probably is John's wedding. So he's talking about, we know that John doesn't give us his name. So this could be John's wedding here for all we know. Other than the miracle being his first, I think I asked the question and I, I really think to myself, well, why is this miracle so important? Uh, we know it's his first miracle. We know he saved the family from losing face. So the heart and the purpose behind any of the miracles for Jesus was foremost that his disciples, his followers, would believe him. Again, if you look at verse 11, he says that this happened so that they would believe. And John wraps that in over and over. That same theme shows up in the gospel here. He will say he did this so that they would believe. He did this so that they would believe. I think it's important for us to remember this when we think about miracles. I know oftentimes there's a lot of fascination with that. Um, I, I know that a lot of people like to see miracles just for miracles sake. This was never the intention or purpose of Jesus. Whenever there was a miracle that he would do or perform, it was so that you would believe. And the same is true today. That miracles are not done for entertainment's sake. They're done for salvation's sake. They're done that in a way that would lead people to the redemption that they so desperately need in the person of Jesus Christ. So you can know that miracles are in John's gospel. He says signs. Signs are leading others to believe on him, especially those that are close to him, those that are, that are following him. So I do believe there probably is another reason when I go over this passage, uh, probably a more personal reason that this took place so that I think it's so his mother would be honored. Now, this is unpacked in a lot of different ways by different scholars, but I really believe this took place so that his, his mother would be honored. Now, Mary implies that Jesus do something with the comment, comment they have no more wine. Can you, can you just hear this? Um, the mother of Jesus is, is looking at Jesus saying, <clears throat> they have no more wine. Son, you can do this. They have no more wine. This is so interesting to me. She's making this request, or at least this statement. And in this universe, just under the influence of the Godhead comes mom. You see what I'm saying? I mean, father, son, Holy Spirit, and mother. And, 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 and there's no other in greater influences than those four. Uh, there have been no greater influences in my life except th those four in my life. And, and so this is so true. And, and I can just hear Mary's tone of voice. Can you hear this? Now, my son, who I went through a lot of trouble to birth, um, would you do something here? You, I know who you are. These other people need to know who you are as well. And so Mary makes uh, this veiled request. And Mary is so proud of her son. She knows who he is. At this moment, I, I wonder at this particular ceremony that Mary remembers the shepherd's visit the first Christmas morning. How could she forget? I wonder at this moment if she remembered the Magi who showed up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I wonder if she remembered um, 
Simeon's prophetic word over that little baby on the eighth day where he prayed and he said, this is to fulfill the hearts and desire of all salvation. Jesus brings salvation to all of his people. I'm just thinking in, in her mind, she's probably remembering the day he taught in the temple at 12 years old. These are all the things that I'm sure uh, the mother here, Mother Mary, would not forget. The Bible even says she remembered all those things, remember and pondered them in her heart. And so Mary is making this request, and I, I think part of the reason it was fulfilled was to honor a mother, to honor Mary. Jesus responds in verse 4 using a term she probably hadn't heard from him before. Notice the term that's used here in verse 4. It's woman. Uh, woman, why are you involving me in this? My hour has not yet come. So a little explanation on this one. The term was not an intimate term, but it was a respectful term. It wasn't like mama, uh, but it was like we would say today, yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. It, it's, it's a very polite term to use. And this one word, woman, showed something was happening. It showed that the relationship between mother and son is changing. See, for 33 years, there, there are 30 years, there had been this mother-son relationship. And now that relationship is changing, and it's being signaled by this one word, woman, that now it's, it's all changing. And if you remember, John does this at the end of Jesus' life. He uses that same term again while he's on the cross, and he says to John, take care of this woman. Take care of her. She needs someone to take care of her. So he brings this out, uh, and he lets everyone know that this relationship is changing. And Jesus goes on to say, my hour has not yet come. Now, why is he saying that? I think there's a reason he's saying that is because mom is probably thinking to herself, it's now. This is the time that the Messiah is going to be seen and known. This is what we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, no, this is just a little, little peek into the window because where this is really going to happen is through my death and resurrection that's why he says the hour hasn't come because full redemption is going to come through the sacrifice of jesus christ to redeem all of us of our sin and so he says to her no this isn't where this is going to happen and jesus knows it's not going to happen until that day jesus knows that, that, that what's going to take place is going to take place in a, in a few years. And so he says that. He makes that clear. Uh, Jesus was more here than, than Mary's son. He was and is the son of God. And he was God's son. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God, including the mother of Jesus. The mother of Jesus comes to salvation the same way that we come to salvation. But I love, I love Mary's response here. Notice what she says. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Hey, that's a transfer of power right there. I mean, that's a big thing for a, a mom to say, I'm not going to be in charge anymore. It's my son. So she turns over control to her, her son, Jesus. I, I think that's incredible that that's taking place. This is a big deal. A mother giving up her control and deferring to her child. This might even be another miracle wrapped in a miracle. Again, most scholars will say that Mary 
uh, probably had something to do with the coordination of the wedding. That she was part of a, a family group that was helping coordinate. That would tell us and explain why servants would come to her or she would know that the, the wine was running out. You don't know that unless you're privy to it and you're part of all the planning that goes on. So to me, there's a third miracle that happens. You have the water turning into wine. You have a mother giving control to a child. And then you have, I've never seen this, a wedding coordinator saying, do whatever you want. I've never heard that. I've been in a lot of weddings. Those wedding coordinators, they hold on. I mean, they make sure it happens from A to Z. That's their job. So she turns that control over to Jesus Christ. So when reading this passage, it made me ask a, a, another question, probably a more personal question. Maybe it's a question all of us can ask. What do I do when I know I need a miracle? I mean, what, what does it look like in my life? And maybe that's true about you right now, because this would be the application for us to read through this and understand what we've just talked about, but coming to this place and making it real, making it personal, and saying, what is it that I need? What do I do when I need a miracle? Something that occurs to me about a miracle is that while I, I want a miracle, in fact, I need a miracle, you know, the changes that always come when a miracle happens is what I typically resist. I, I want the miracle, but I want it on my terms. I want the miracle, but I really, I don't want to change. I don't want my life to change that much, but God, give me a miracle. How many, how many have bargained with God that way? Where we're saying and we're praying and we recognize it's obvious we need a miracle, but we're thinking, well, let me do this on my terms. So even though change is something I know I need, but I usually don't embrace. That's what I understand about my interaction with miracles and what God wants to do in my life to bring change. So what are the conditions or circumstances that, that drive the miracle of change? Well, uh, I think the key is found in verse 3 where it says they ran out. I think when you look at a miracle and where you really want to see a miracle or experience a miracle in your life, you have to come to the place where you've just tapped out. You just ran out. And in this case, they, they ran out of wine. And again, because of the culture, this was a bad thing to run out of wine. See, the worst thing that could happen was to run out, but at our worst is when God works his best. When we say we've run out, running out of wine at the wedding feast again was a shameful thing. It was a horrible thing for a family. It's when we come to this place of, of running out that, that we're desperate, desperate for usually answers. And we try to lurch and find any kind of answer that we can hold on to just to to get us through. Have you, have you done that before? You're just trying to hold on to anything that keeps you from even looking empty. Here, here's what I've discovered about answers. Answers, they're, they're temporary. Answers are just for the moment. That's usually what we want, but that's not always in God's plan. That it's not just about giving you an answer because he knows that that's going to go away and, and that, that then when the answer comes, oh, we're just off the hook and we feel better and we go about life just as if it never happened. It, it isn't the answer that is going to change you. It's the transformation. It's the power of God's Holy Spirit that changes us. It's the process of going through change that changes us. 
And Jesus knows that. And so God wants us to have what will last. And, and that takes time. There's going to be some time. There's going to be some waiting. There's going to be some, <laughs> some patience required. When I want it right now, God's saying, no, it's not going to come right now. It's not going to be on your timeline. It's going to be on my timeline. And until you submit to me in my timeline, you're really not going to experience what I want you to experience. I've heard him say that to me. That's what I think about miracles, that things may only come that last through seeking and waiting, through seeking and waiting, through seeking and waiting. There's something so profound about seeking and waiting on the Lord that we don't get any other way except to seek and wait. See, the seeking and waiting are virtues that I'm not accustomed to. It's not my strong suit. Uh, The lesson that I want to learn that God wants to teach me is he's in charge and that he's going to make it happen when he wants it to happen. You know, I may, I may need a miracle, but I need to remember what God wants to do in my life through that miracle. That what I would submit to there and what I would say to you is when you sign up and say, Lord, I am desperate for a miracle, at the same time say, Lord, I'm going to follow your pace. I'm going to follow your lead. I'm going to do what you ask me to do. So what do I do when I know I need a miracle? If you're going to follow what we see here in this passage, number one is this. Confess that you're empty and invite Jesus into your emptiness. That, that's the first thing that we do when we know we need a miracle. Whatever that might be in your life, this works. Jesus loves empty people. If you remember the Beatitudes, the poor, those that mourn, those that are meek, those are the first three, and it's about emptying before something's filled, before we're filled because we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Empty people need their nothing turned into something, and Jesus can do that because Jesus is our creator. He makes that happen. He has the ability to make it happen just with a word, just with a spoken word. When I invite Jesus in, it's, it's his majesty, it's his authority, it's his grace, it's his love that brings change in my life, that brings change in your life. So first of all, What do I do when I know I need a miracle? I need to confess that I'm empty and I invite Jesus into that place, into that empty place. Second is this. Focus on God's purpose in your life. Stay focused. Stay focused on what God has called you to. That's what Jesus showed us when he said, my time has not yet come. Listen, I don't know. I don't know. It'd be so tempting right there just to, you know, just kind of have a little magic show for the folks at the wedding, you know. I mean, a little fun. They'll never forget that wedding, you know. And especially if I turn the water into wine, they'll remember that. But what does Jesus do? He waits. He defers. He's saying, no, I'm not in it for just this. There's something greater. There's something bigger. Jesus stayed focused on being obedient to his Father to the very end. He did not go off the rails. And there were several times there was that temptation, if you remember the Gospels, and if you remember the journey that Jesus took. Remember that one time when he fed the 5,000, and they were all, I think, they were just all full and feeling good, and, and they thought, wow, he can feed us. Let's make him king. Let's make him king. He had to get out of there. I mean, we're talking lickety-split. He had to hightail it out because it says they physically wanted to restrain him. 
and make him their king. And Jesus said, I'm not having anything to do with this. Now, how many of us, given the propensity of flesh, would have done that? I, I don't know. I don't know if I would have said, no, you don't need to make me king. I, I, I probably would have been just, I would lead in the march, you know, lead the procession. I am the king, I am the king, you know, because I just fed you. And, and I'd be leading the march, but Jesus says, no, I have to get out of here. I really need to get out. My time has not yet come. So what does Jesus do? He, he stays focused on his mission. So here's some ways that you can stay focused on God's purpose. I think one is, what has God said to you? Always think about that. We've been talking about that with our, our, our staff and our, our church team. We've been talking about uh, the template that's given to us in Acts chapter 15 when they were trying to figure out in the Council of Jerusalem what does it look like to be a Christian. And what they did is they lowered the bar. They said, no, you don't have to eat the same foods. No, you don't have to be circumcised. No, you don't have to do any of those things. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's what you need to do. And I think about <clears throat> what has God said to us? Remember the day of salvation for you. Where did that happen? Was it quietly in your room? Was it a, at a public event? Was it at church? Where was that? Where did that happen? The Bible wants us and always tells us to hold on to those, those, those times where God worked in our lives. So what has he done? What has he said to you? What are the prophetic words that he's spoken to you? Because God has given you words for you personally, for your family members. I think it's always important for me to stay focused. I, re I need to remember what has God said to me. And then the second thing is, is what is God doing around me now? I mean, what, what is God up to now? What are the signs of God at work in my life? And that's why we need to have eyes to see and ears to hear because the subtlety of the Holy Spirit at times is imperceptible. You don't always see it or know it like it's a blaring horn or a, or, or, or a big mural. It's subtle. And if you are sensitive and tender to God's Holy Spirit, you can look around and say, oh, I, I see what he's up to right now. I see what he's doing right now. I'll tell you, that's probably one of those um, discernments kind of discernment that we can all pray for. Lord, let me see what you're up to now. Let me see what you're doing now. Not only in my life, but in those that I influence. What are you up to in their life? It's what's happening right now. I know that's been true for Annette and I just pastoring here in the church is, is we haven't had this huge blueprint. And I've said this to you before. It's been more about listening and hearing. Listening and hearing what is the Lord up to and let's come alongside of that. And I think that you've had that example for you, you've had that modeled for you, especially in the last few days. I mean, that's how Karen and I had a discussion. It was like, okay, what's God up to in your life right now? Let's talk about that. And uh, a lot of times there's, there's several no's before you get to a yes. A lot of times there's several frustrations before you get that freedom and a release to go do what God wants you to do because he wants to do it in his time. He wants to do it in his way. So what is God doing around you? And then the third thing that you can do in order to stay focused is how can I come alongside? There it is. How can I partner with God's spirit? I think that's the, the, one of the most important things is partnering with, committing to partner with the spirit of God. 
saying, I'm not going to do my own thing, but I'm going to partner with the Spirit of God. I want, I want the fingerprint of God all over this. I want, I want His mark on my life. Like the Apostle Paul said, I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I've been tattooed by God. That God has left an impression on me that will be for eternity. And those are the things that I want to experience in my life. And then there's something else here that when you look at this story and how do I respond and what do I do when I need a miracle, the last is this. Trust Jesus through the change. Trust Jesus through the change because the miracle that you will experience will bring change to your life as well. Simply follow Mary's words to the servants. <laughs> do what he tells you to do. So when Jesus shows up, you do what he tells you to do. And for most of us, this is probably easier said than done, isn't it? And we ask ourselves, why is that true? But I think, I think it's true because real trust doesn't occur until we have committed the full weight of our hopes and our dreams and our expectations on Jesus. That all my hopes and dreams and expectations aren't on the shoulders of man, but they're on the shoulders of God. And that when I'm looking into what God has for me, the miracle that he provides for me, I need to trust him. I think that's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said after doing everything to stand, he said just, just stand fast. Trust See what I will do. That's what I think the Lord would say to a lot of us today. Just hold steady and trust in him because what he wants to do in and through you can not only change the world around you, but it can change the world. That's what we're about. We're about the kingdom of God and seeing what he can do to make a difference and what we can do to come alongside to make a difference in this world. Would you bow your head with me for just a moment? I just want to throw this out before we go today. Just ask the question, who needs a miracle? And if you, if you need a miracle, I'm not going to ask you what it is. If you need a miracle, just lift your hand. And then after you do that, good, thank you. And just uh, several of you. And then go ahead and write it down if you'd like. You don't have to put your name on anything, but write it. We have paper, pieces of paper. We have cards around you, connect cards. You can write it there. You can put it in the boxes before you go because we, we're serious. We want to pray for those miracles to come in your life, to happen in your life. And so we want to see the Lord work miracles in you, and that's what we are going to pray for. If you need a miracle today, just call in the name of the Lord. That's what we do. We call on him, and we know, first of all, we confess that we're empty. We invite Jesus in. We focus and stay focused on God's plan and purpose, and then we trust Jesus through the change that miracles bring. So, Father, today we just want to thank you for your good work in our lives. We want to thank you that you are bringing about miracles, some that we don't even uh, comprehend now, some that we can't even imagine now. It might be the salvation of a, a prodigal son or a daughter. It might be provision that was totally unexpected that satisfies a debt that we have. It, it, might, it might be just a, a relationship with a neighbor that was sour, goes, goes in a good direction, and there's breakthroughs there. 
Lord, those are miracles that, that we need. And, and we, we confess to you, we don't have what it takes to make those miracles happen. Only you do. And so we say to you, we confess to you that we're empty and we invite you into that empty place. And Lord, then we stay focused on what you're up to and the purposes of God in our life. And we trust you through this change. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name for those that need miracles today that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.